Lynch. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. In this week's episode, we talk to Giannis Grimm about his new book, Contesting Legitimacy, looking at the aftermath of the Rabah massacre in Egypt. We also talk to Marwa Fatafka of Access Now about digital authoritarianism, content moderation, and the potential impact of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. And finally, we talked to Thanasi Kambanis of Century International about their new project on citizenship, armed groups, and comparing the United States, Europe, and the Middle East. Thanks for listening to our podcast. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book segment, we're joined by Janis Grimm of the, the Free University of Berlin, author of the new book, Contested Legitimacies, Repression and Revolt in Post-Revolutionary Egypt, published by Amsterdam University Press. Janis, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for inviting me, Mark. I'm thrilled to be here. So it's great to see this book out uh, after we workshopped it uh, a couple of years ago, and um, it's so really great to see it in print. Uh, so why don't you tell us a little bit about the major, you know, takeaway of the book? What, what was the major contribution of your research? So I guess uh, at the beginning of this book, and what actually sparked the interest for the entire book was an empirical research puzzle that is related to the question of, you know, when does repression work and when does it not work? And it, uh, that puzzle goes back actually to the events of the early days of the Arab Spring. So kind of long before the start of the investigation period that is actually covered in the book, which is uh, roughly the years between 2013 and 2019. And uh, as you will remember, and probably most listeners will remember, um, uh, during the early days of the Egyptian uprising, during the 18 days of Tahrir, uh, Hosni Mubarak made this vicious attempt to disperse the crowds in Tahrir Square with the help of hired thugs. Um, you know, this uh, event uh, on, 20, uh, on 2 February that's called, um, recalled as the Battle of the Camel usually, right? Um, um, however, the attack then affected actually completely the opposite of what it intended. So rather than ending the protest, it actually only emboldened those that were defending the square. And it actually provoked a huge influx of additional supporters and, 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 and contributed uh, um, significantly, I think, to turning the public mood against the regime at the time. And uh, in repression research, that, that phenomenon has always been termed the backlash effect. However, then here comes the event at the heart of the book. Uh, two and a half years later, after the Battle of the Camel, the security forces in Egypt moved against another protest camp on, on Midan al-Rabat al-Adawiya um, in mid-2013, where the uh, supporters of the post-President Morsi were camping. And that time, actually, repression was very successful in a way. So, so the security forces cleared the square um, in a matter of hours. And at the end of the day, you had uh, over a thousand people dead. And here's actually where theory kind of fails us. So unlike in 2011, there was no backlash uh, in terms of mobilization across ideological and social cleavages, and neither did the protesters adopt a very violent struggle against the system. On the contrary, actually, police uh, brutality was largely condoned by society. So what we have there is kind of this disparate this puzzle of disparate reactions to very, very similar phenomena. And I just simply couldn't wrap my head around it. So at the time of the crackdown, I was working on, on the mobilization efforts by this anti-coup coalition that was uh, supporting President Morsi at the time. And uh, I had been working on it for a couple of weeks and, and had uh, talked to participants of the protest camps. And then I followed up on the on, on these conversations in the aftermath of the Rabah clearings. And uh, the aim was to, to make sense of, you know, this counterintuitive effects of the massacre. Um, 
And uh, what I found is basically that uh, um, on the one hand, you had a certain type of backlash, um, um, but, but it was largely overlooked by researchers because it stayed confined to the supporter spectrum of Morsi. And on the other hand, um, I found that what was really important in terms of explaining the reaction of like non-committed activists, so not the core activists of the Antico movement to these massacres was not actually what factually happened on the ground, so not the material sequence of events, um, so not really the targeted or untargeted brutality of police forces, not really, you know, the, the indiscriminate nature of it, but actually the meaning-making processes that followed and, 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 um, and happened before uh, Rabah, and actually that kind of embedded this massacre into a very securitized uh, discourse that that made sense of what was happening in terms of a necessary evil. Um, so that is kind of, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, at the heart of the book that, uh, you know, moral shocks and backlash, etc. They are, um, in a way, equally as dependent on the politics of meaning making and the politics of signification, than they are on actually what happens in, in material terms on the ground. So yeah, in a nutshell. So it's interesting because a, a huge amount of the literature on Egypt has focused on uh, Tahrir and, uh, you know, that uh, on 2011. And uh, your work seems to be part of kind of a wave of scholarship, which is finally kind of moving beyond that and centering what happens after 2011. And uh, so can maybe tell us a little bit about the decision to focus your research there. So, um I guess this, this, the, the, the decision to focus the research on that period specifically is, uh, um, it's, it's, it's not monocausal. So on the one hand, this is a very deeply personal decision. So at the time that I was working on the anti-communization, I found it actually after Rabah deeply disturbing to actually witness many of those who had been victimized by repression only two years earlier themselves, many of whom I've had, had met at protest events in 2011, become close with, etc. Um, now actually re relativize or even cheer for the very kind, uh, the very same kind of state violence that they had actually suffered themselves. And among those were, you know, respected journalists, activists, leader of opposition, etc. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, that I, I kind of felt like, you know, want, someone has to write about what's going, what's ha what's happening actually on the ground. And little had been written at the time, and I think still for it being one of the largest massacres uh, uh, against protesters um, outside of a war context in the last 100 years or so, it, it, there's still very little uh, written about it. And secondly, um, uh, less personal, I think it was very much inspired as well by a certain wave of scholarship that, uh, you know, did very meticulous research um, on the first wave of the Arab Spring that actually moved, let's say, uh, social movement studies uh, into a new direction when it came to the Middle East. So it built on, of course, the, the works on labor movements, on kefaya, et cetera, that had been there uh, with regard to Egypt before, but actually complemented these works with new methods uh, inspired by more mainstream mobilization and social movement studies like protest event analysis, uh, visual analysis, uh, discourse analysis and framing analysis, et cetera. And uh, so these works, um, some of which which have also been discussed here in the podcast, I guess, inspired me quite a lot um, to try to join some of these different uh, strands of research and more, more specifically, of course, protest event uh, um, analysis and discourse analysis in a joint design in a way to explore what's going on. So before we get into, uh, you know, get back to the substance of it, maybe tell us a little bit about the, uh, the, the data that you pulled together, your protest event data set and um, the, the, and the, uh, and how you went about collecting uh, this information about uh, the anti-coup alliance. 
Sure. So uh, in essence, the, the, the book is uh, built on three types of, of, of primary um, data, I would say. So uh, on the one hand, you have this protest event catalog, which is a, a manually compiled event catalog um, from um, a range of uh, different uh, media sources, online and offline sources, um, um, including some which are, you know, Masra al um, or Al Ahram, which are kind of the, the major uh, Egyptian newspapers at the time of different strands, Al Shuruk, uh, etc., um, and some others like uh, the Rust News Network, etc., that that de de developed more uh, in the wake of the Arab Spring or became big in the wake of the Arab Spring and focused much more on a kind of counter-public or counter-narrative. Uh, um, um, to um, the more traditional media systems. And from these newspapers uh, uh, and, and, and media sources, I coded um, hand-coded events, basically in a very very similar um, fashion, I would say, than, than others uh, like Neil Ketchley, Chantal Berman, and others, uh, and Killian Clark, and so on, have, have done it as well for, for different contexts, or in the case of Neil, for the same. Um, and uh, um, so, so to build a protest event catalog that was then supplemented by uh, repression data that was kind of measured by proxy through the databases released by Wikithauda at the time. So um, source uh, like kind of uh, uh, data on who has been killed, who was targeted um, um, by uh, arrests and, and who was injured during protest events. And uh, put together, you, you got kind of a comprehensive picture for a certain time frame of uh, the interaction of repression and protest events. Um, and that data is supplemented then um, with uh, um, a discourse analysis, and, and for that, I, I used in a way the protest event data as kind of a backbone or as a as a pulse uh, of, of of the protest that that showed me kind of the hot phrases, the turning points, um, the low points, uh, and where kind of repression and uh, protest intersected, or when they where they went apart, and then I kind of zoomed in to these episodes. Um, and did kind of a longitudinal snapshot analysis, if you want. So I looked at the discourses of the main contentious players at the time uh, through their press releases, through um, social media postings about events, through protest calls, and um, kind of analyzed these uh, segments of discourse at a certain point in time in relation to other points in time, and then in their relation to this, to see kind of is there feedback effects, what is shifting, what is not shifting, are different discourses influencing the conditions of possibility of how people act then on the ground, are they influencing tactics, slogans, etc. Um, yeah, and then kind of to check, uh, kind of, uh, or to counterbalance all of this analysis, which is a, a bit, you know, bird's eye perspective and, 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 and from abroad, this was all kind of uh, supplemented with interviews, um, with a range of interviews, mostly with protest organizers or members of the Antiku Alliance, or later then of um, the popular coalition, um, the Tehran Sanafir coalition against uh, um, the relinquishing of the Tehran Sanafir Islands to Saudi Arabia. Um, but these interviews, in a way, they 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 are more kind of an additional source. So mm -hmm. so they were not um, systematically analyzed throughout the text, but they were rather meant to keep keep you know my own analysis in check, if you will, um, for for different reasons, for security reasons, for transparency reasons, etc. Um, the, the 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 context in Egypt, as you know, of course, vastly changed uh, over the the investigation period and and simply made reliance on a certain type of interview data collected within Egypt with Muslim Brotherhood members, for instance, is simply impossible. Yeah, no, it's been a, a huge change and very difficult research environment. Um, so let's get back to your central puzzle then. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the response that you describe of the kind of the absence of a moral shock after Rabah 
you know, it builds on, you know, basically political polarization and social polarization, which began almost as soon as Morsi was elected. Um, and so how would you describe that process of polarization um, and divisions that emerged after his election? Um, I would say that polarization had started already before the elections and, and was kind of uh, epitomized in this narrative of the seculars versus the Islamists. And, uh, and, and I think a, a narrative that was also reproduced in, in a large swath of media uh, coverage of the Arab Spring uh, and its aftermath. And uh, it was also reflected, of course, in, in um, narratives on the ground, so to speak, in Egypt about what had happened in the last days of the Arab Spring, whether the Muslim Brotherhood had been itself, uh, you know, central player within the revolution, or whether it had compromised or entered a quiet entente uh, with the army um, to kind of, um, yeah, um, betray the revolution and, and, and take power and so on. So these different narratives, they played out even before the elections, long before the elections already, but they were, of course, reproduced in the power struggles that unfolded um, in the election process itself, where the choice for many Egyptians was obviously one between uh, two evils, so to speak. And um, initially, um, um, Morsi still, um, well, first Khairat al-Shatr, but then when Morsi took over, um, um, kind of had the benefit of a doubt, if you will, and many people chose to either not vote or vote for him, rather than uh, um, give an acolyte of the old regime uh, um, um, a vote. Um, however, I, I guess, um, in, and this has been discussed, of course, at length in, in different books, um, that uh, the aftermath of these first elections showed that um, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood um, relied on a very much um, exclusivist notion on democracy um, in its legitimization of its rule and um, chose, um, for better or worse, not to compromise with what they saw as very minor factions in, in, in Egyptian post-revolutionary politics, um, which created uh, obviously a lot of grievances um, uh, among these very groups. Um, which then in turn, um, I guess, uh, laid, laid the, the basis or the foundation of the fertile ground, pre prepared the fertile ground on which mobilization efforts for the position of Morsi or for a referendum against Morsi then um, um, could take place, I would say. So this is actually one. So your focus on the politics of meaning here is really relevant because you would do a really nice job in the book of describing not just the politics of it, but just these profoundly different uh, understandings of the world that the two sides developed. And they're very different understandings of what legitimacy even meant. Yes, exactly. I would say that um, the, the, uh, so I argue in this book that actually this, this, this um, signifier legitimacy is something of an empty signifier. It's, it's a very, it was always from the start a very contested master signifier, uh, namely that uh, um, um, of the president's legitimacy that articulated along very much four, four pillars, you know, if you will. So it was the constitutional legitimacy that Mursi could draw on, the electoral democracy that he, you know, the, the victory at the ballot box, basically, the national security and stability argument that, that was brought in that basically by having a president um, that would steer the, co the country's course, you would kind of safeguard the country's um, security by... Um, um, yeah, uh, impeding people to disrupt the democratic transitional process through continued mobilization over and over again that would then erode the pillars of society. Um, and then third, and, and finally, um, the glory of the January 25 revolution, which um, the, the Muslim Brotherhood itself and its, in its discourse in, and its allies um, um, always uh, made very strong. So this 
quartet, quartet in a way, mm -hmm. um, was very much central also to the self-definition of the anti-coup alliance after the deposition of uh, President Morsi. However, the very notion of legitimacy had already doomed the government of President Morsi <laughs> to fail in the first ways. Um, it, 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 its lack of compromise, basically, um, uh, had cemented an image that the president understood democracy simply as unchecked majority rule, right? And, and, and many thus argue that also his supporters by proxy had no credible claim to either constitutionality or democracy at all, right? So in a way, by sticking to this very contentious notion of legitimacy and the meaning that it entailed, um, the anti-coup alliance, when it was then targeted by brutal repression, actually, it had already forestalled any chances for cross-ideological solidarity or for larger alliance building within the frame of a broader cross-cutting movement. And it also precluded very much, I guess, uh, popular solidarity when uh, civilians were then massacred in Rabat because many people would not compromise um, and, and showing empathy or so showing solidarity in a very bifurcated political landscape would have meant a repositioning of yourself on the other side of the antagonist frontier, which is on the brotherhood side. Um, so, so that is kind of a central argument that this um, um, of the book, that this notion of this very much contested and undermined notion of legitimacy by sticking to it, um, it, it already in a way doomed the anti-coup movement to fail from the outset. Now, the heart of the book really is the study of the anti-coup movement. Um, and you, you look at it as it evolves through multiple phases. Um, maybe we could start by talking about the pre-Rabah phase and kind of the initial response uh, to the coup um, as, as you have not just the Muslim Brotherhood, but others, other political forces who are kind of shocked by what had just happened. Yes, that is true. So. Um, uh, the book, of course, uh, thematizes much more the members of the um, national co coalition in support of legitimacy. So the what what, what yeah is commonly referred to of the anti-coup alliances, which then after the coup actually added this this uh, in support of legitimacy and rejection of the coup uh, aspect to its name, and then it only became the anti-coup alliance. Before that, it was already out there on the streets protesting, but then, you know, uh, um, uh, turning back the wheel of time and 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 and, and getting Morsi back into office, of course, became its main goal after the coup. But um, so so the book focuses mostly on this coalition, including uh, the Muslim Brotherhood's coalition partners. But of course, it thematizes also other players, like um, a representative of different political parties, some of which most prominently, of course, Mohammed al-Baradei became then part of the transitional government in an attempt, in a way, to... Uh, bridge social polarization and uh, um, re like it's extend the hand in a way to the supporters of uh, Mursi um, to build something of a more inclusive coalition. However, that um, experiment in a way uh, uh, was a very short-lived one, which became very obvious already um, in the early days after the coup, basically. So when Mursi was arrested, many of his supporters thought that uh, he had he would he he was held in the barracks of the Republican Guard. So they staged this large uh, overnight sit-in in the streets uh, um, next to the Republican Guard barracks, and. Uh, um, after a sequence of minor clashes, which already caused um, some, some victims, actually, um, there was this uh, attempt to disperse the protests uh, at the Republican Guard, which resulted in, in many victims, uh, many dead and, uh, um, and many injured, which created sort of a first wave of um, martyrs, if you will, that then the anti-coup movement built on that only reinforced through by, by virtue of, you know, um, 
showing up the moral qualities of dying for the righteous cause, it kind of only reinforced this uh, non-compromising notion um, of the anti-coup mobilization in the, in the post-coup aftermath. And then uh, this massacre, um, if you will, it was, a, it was a massacre. In fact, I mean, there were um, um, live ammunition was, was used against largely peaceful protesters. Um, was then followed up uh, by a, a range of clashes and uh, between police forces and um, anti-coup protesters in the week that followed, that led up um, then to another, let's what I, what I call another transformative event, uh, which were uh, the clashes on Nasser Street um, at the end of uh, July 2013. Um, with, in which police forces, largely without taking any cover, shot with automatic weapons at protesters and where protesters responded, also some of them with makeshift shotguns and, and, and uh, stones and Molotov cocktails and so on. And uh, these clashes lasted basically uh, for, for one and a half days overnight and they left uh, scores of people dead. And um, each of these violent incidents and violent encounters, they basically put both parties that were clashing um, into a position where they needed to explain why they were staying on course with what they were doing. So that, that kind of did not lead to a more propensity towards compromise, but rather a reinforcal of a very antagonist way of framing the struggle. Of course, if you lose people on your side, then uh, it becomes much harder to, you know, compromise with the one responsible in, in your discourse and in your in, in your narrative of the situation for these deaths. On the other hand, if you're part of a regime or a government whose authorities uh, and security and law enforcement uh, agencies are actually the perpetrators of such mass violence, it puts you in the position that you have to legitimize what they're doing. So the securitizing notions uh, that were um, that that were proposed by, by the regime authorities and how they portrayed the Brotherhood, they became more and more securitizing. They became more and more um, harsh, exclusivist, non-compromising. So um, the narrative shifted from a battle uh, for the Egyptian to save the Egyptian revolution to a battle uh, um, against, um, you know, uh, terrorism to a war on terror. Um, till basically in the days before Rabah, the discursive frontiers were hardened to an extent that bridging them became almost impossible. And actually, uh, in the last days before for Rabah, a couple of uh, uh, respected political figures in both camps, so both uh, from the Nur Party, for instance. Um, but but also um, 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 uh, from from other allies within the anti-coalition itself, and including a, a, a range of public intellectuals, they made actually desperate attempts to you know create some sort of dialogue uh, between these hardened fronts. But at the time, it was also almost impossible for either of the parties to you know take a step back in a face-saving manner. So there was no exit option actually, actually to, 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 to either of the players anymore. Um, so um, in a way, they, they became prisoners of their own meaning-making structures that had worked well for both sides to, to shore up support within um, the respective core constituencies for the Brotherhood to keep the movement together and um, despite brutal repression to, to keep some kind of core coherence. Um, and for the other side, for the post-school regime, including all the players that had somehow um, um, reluctantly accepted it because they had rejected the rule of President Morsi, for them, it became also harder to extend um, you know, their, 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 their hand and, and, and seek dialogue with, with the opposing side, um, which they had actually, whose securitization they had to a certain extent supported as well. So they kind of became trapped. That's why I argue mm -hmm. in, in the book. Now, one of the interesting uh, shifts that you track uh, throughout the chapters of the book is the move from 
first the, these encampments, the Atorba, uh, you know, mm-hmm. tend, you know, something not dissimilar in, in a lot of ways from the occupation of Tahrir, but you know, it's kind of a, a place building, you know, the center of the movement. And then of course, after it it's crushed and repressed and massacred, you have a shift towards these to the marches and to all these different other forms of political mobilization. So T- tell me what you see, what you saw in these different tactics and strategies in terms of how they were trying to build this alternative to the coup. So um, I think uh, the, this aspect of the book that you mentioned is actually one that um, strongly testifies to the value of a disaggregated analysis of, of such protest repression dynamic because they allow you to see that basically it's not only about the large protest events it's not only about the major square squattings and square occupation but there's a lot of tactics and and some of them are very disruptive and actually very effective also in in um raising attention for a certain cause that um fly below the radar let's say of of mass um of the mass media attention on protests so um after raba actually the common narrative that was uh, um you know uh, reproduced in 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 the bulk of uh local but also western media and in much of uh, commentary about the anti-coup mobilization was you know the brotherhood is done with you know they're over uh, the massacre um was brutal but um it in a way um served its purpose and 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 for Sisi it did the job um what a lot of uh, um uh, researchers uh, and, and 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 pundits actually overlooked was that uh, mobilization virtually stayed the same when you look at the turnout levels of participants, it only shifted to different forms. So, of course, it became much harder after Rabat to occupy larger squares at major traffic interjunctions. The regime had kind of learned from its mistakes in the past, so they had la- had let uh, Rabat run for one and a half months, basically, and that in these one and a half months until they cleared it, the 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 what had begun as a small, like a really small tent city, had developed into you know a huge tent city with barricades, and they had been fortified. There were tactical committees on the square. There were protection units and so on. So the authorities were not uh, going to let that happen again. And there were actually a couple of attempts to occupy new squares uh, across Egypt, across different towns that that failed. Um, and especially on Fridays and on very symbolic dates. So, so the, the police presence and, and army presence on on uh, very symbolic locations, uh, such as in front of the presidential palace or at major metro stations and so on, they, they were hugely increased. So um, organizing these large, um, you know, um, mass uh, squares, which had also often been, you know, the point of destination and departure for Mus- uh, the Musira Khashida protest, so that these mass demonstrations um, that Neil Ketchley has also focused on in his research. So they had uh, these, these kind of um, points of concentration, they all of a sudden had disappeared, which um, out of necessity led to a tactical adaptation within the anti-coup movement. So protests became smaller. The number of protests incre- increased rapidly, um, first uh, during weekdays and on, on Fridays, then as repression increased only on Fridays, because then you know you could go to the mosque and afterwards you could go mm-hmm. protest, and it provided an innocuous cover for um, contentious activity, if you will. Um, 
And then in addition, you found a couple of new tactics that entered the repertoire. Some of them had been there before, but uh, they became more prominent, like uh, human chains along major thoroughfares that, you know, where protesters would stand uh, 50 meters apart from each other and so on, making it, of course, much harder for security forces to uh, capture and, and jail a, a large number uh, of demonstrators at uh, like in a short period of time. Um, and which at the same time, of course, reached a lot of people with a message because you stand there is a sign and there's a lot of traffic by passers, um, etc. Then you had, of course, online protests. In some neighborhoods, you had these uh, Farasha protests as well, like uh, people, you know, going to the street, walk, walking a couple of streets, shouting slogans, making a lot of noise, and then disappearing and scattering before security forces would show up. So for a while, the um, the anti-coup coalition managed actually to sustain, to sustain a certain level of mobilization uh, through tactical shifts, but these tactical shifts were often overlooked by uh, people focusing on Egypt because they happened a bit out of the media spotlight. Mm -hmm. And um, so in a way you could say that um, um, many mistook uh, what was actually tactical substitution for um, for a behavioral reduction, which was actually not not there factually. Um, yeah, so, and so with, maybe... with, with these shifts, oh, sure. They, they can ahead. also shift in the composition of the movement just to to yeah mm -hmm. to add this i mean so women for instance took on a much uh, more prominent role students uh, pupils at schools etc that used their schools and campuses to do these protests so it's quite interesting actually to see how repression actually triggered a whole bunch of adaptation processes out of necessity some of which were actually quite effective to sustain a movement for for quite a while for a couple of months uh, um and 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 actually up until today only in much uh, lower frequency and scale of of course, um, uh, despite like really un unprecedented uh, repression, brutality, uh, forced disappearances, etc. Maybe one last question. Um, go back to where you began, which is the absence of a moral shock among the vast majority of the Egyptian public and why all of these anti-coup efforts ultimately failed. Was it simply Sisi's uh, you know, overwhelming repression or you think there's more to it than that? Um, I think I think there's 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 more to it than that. Um, of course, repression plays a role, and the fear instilled by repression plays a role. Um, and in a way, um, um, as Mahal Abdurrahman uh, has argued, uh, Sisi seemed to have struck a certain winning formula uh, for guaranteeing popular support by, you know, betting on a very nationalist securitizing discourse, which is a, you know, it's a powerful tool and, and people tend to think of it, uh, of course, um, in relation to uh, autocracies, but it's also a very powerful tool uh, in, in terms of social mobilization and, and more emancipatory politics, uh, as you can see, um, right Right now in Ukraine, but as you could see also in the protests that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union, for instance, also nationalism is a very, very, very strong tool and a very powerful signifier the nation and its defense that uh, can serve to justify a lot of restrictive policies and actually um, demobilize um, a, a larger political public uh, from joining a what is already a contentious movement. However, what I argue in the book is that um, the picture is a bit more complicated than that because in a way this nationalist discourse that works so well in repressing um, um, protests and in, you know, channeling all social descent into a state-centric model of how we solve the problems that that you know abound in a society. It, that these nationalist discourses they carry in a way the seeds of its own destruction because uh, those people that um, reproduce them and perpetuate them they in a way constantly have to fulfill 
and uh, the aspiration. They have to walk the talk. They have to kind of live up to the image that they construct of themselves. And actually, this is a quite a huge burden that can be become overwhelming, um, especially in when 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 rulers begin to face uh, structural constraints and, and and big crises and so on. And uh, as I argue in the book, then you can see after Rabah, of course, how. Um, these these seeds always led in a way to to social eruptions wherever it became obvious that the authorities were not actually walking the talk and were actually not fulfilling the promises that they were making and um, and in these cases social movements were actually put into the ability to harness on this very um, you know emotional uh, dimension of nationalist discourse and turn it away against its own architects so uh, what I call harnessing hegemony um, so I think it's an ambiguous picture in uh, there um, that you see um, but but I mean looking um, it's almost nine years after Rabah in a way and there's not not really a, a single challenger um, um, as at least not a bottom-up challenger in Egypt uh, visible um, on the horizon who could pose a major um, challenge at the moment to Assisi's rule. Um, I think one could safely say that at least paired with other um, types of investments into society or other um, illusions of grandeur that are projected through discourse, repression uh, is, is still a very efficient tool to actually disrupt the mobilizing structures that could then you know, um, um, reflect in some sort of mass mobilization and protest. Well, great. Um, we've been talking to Yanis Karim about his book, Contested Legitimacies, about uh, Egypt after the Rabah massacre. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you very much for having me. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's episode, we're joined by Marwa Fatfatta of Access Now, uh, which has just released a new report on digital authoritarianism and internet shutdowns. Uh, Marwa, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you for inviting me. So this report is a, a very uh, alarming and uh, well-documented catalog of uh, the increasing use of internet shutdowns and other forms of digital surveillance. Tell us a little bit about the report and uh, the parts that are relevant for those of us who study the Middle East and North Africa. Thank you again, Mark for hosting me. So as you said, we launched this report uh, last week. It's part of the work of Access Now, we're um, a human rights, digital rights organization, um, leading one of the largest coalitions on internet shutdowns called the Keep It On Coalition. It's made of uh, over 250 civil society organizations working to advance dig digital rights around the world. And um, what we've been doc documenting over the course of last year is, as you said, pretty alarming. We've documented around 182 internet shutdowns across 34 countries. Uh, we're talking about decisions taken by authorities to kill the switch, to plunge people into darkness where they can't access information um, in situations like war, conflict, mass protests, or in sometimes uh, less um, serious uh, situations like during national exams. In our region, uh, we see that authorities more and more rely on internet shutdowns as a response to events they um, don't particularly like to happen. So um, the biggest violators, so to speak, are Sudan and Iran. Um, the authorities have shut down the internet uh, whenever there were mass protests 
on the streets that are critical of the government and the military authorities shut down the internet on the day of the military coup in Sudan on the 25th of October for almost a month. Uh, but these are not the only two countries that have resorted to such repressive measure. We've also documented cases of shutdown in uh, Jordan, where the government has throttled live streaming services um, and applications like uh, Clubhouse. Um, in Yemen and Palestine, we see examples of how telecommunications infrastructure become a target for military strikes. So in May 2021, uh, during Israel's bombard bombardment on Gaza, we um, seen how they've struck down two buildings or civilian towers that hosted telecommunications services, which resulted in a partial or full internet shutdown. Um, similarly, in Yemen, uh, the Saudi-led coalition has targeted um, telecommunications headquarters and infrastructure, which again led to um, full internet shutdown um, in some parts of the country. And this leads us to the point of um, how important and essential internet and, and keeping the internet on um, for people, especially during times of crisis or political distress. Now, the internet shutdowns are just one, uh, one part of a much broader arsenal of digital surveillance and control um, that, the, that these regimes um, practice. Um, can you put this into this broader uh, perspective where you see you, you document uh, an escalation in these kinds of methods after a little bit of a slowdown, you suggest? Um, so tell us about kind of the broad, what, you, what you're seeing uh, in terms of the broader scope of digital authoritarianism. Clearly, I mean, digital authoritarianism is on the rise globally, but more so in, in our region. And governments are resorting to very drastic measures. Now, internet shutdowns and cutting off entire populations uh, or partial of that population, like certain segments or communities, are a violation of international law, are a violation of human rights, according to many UN resolutions that um, prohibit governments from resorting to this measure. Um, this, this affects not only our rights, and I mean, our right to freedom of expression, association and assembly online, but also a, a plethora of other rights, like mm -hmm. people's abilities to um, do their business, to communicate with their loved ones. It's, you know, we're talking about social and economic rights where um, people rely on those platforms for all sorts of reasons. Um, and just cutting them off all of a sudden for whatever reason is an extremely devastating measure. Now we're not only talking about human rights and fundamental freedoms, but also we're talking about the economic costs and the social costs of, of these uh, measures. Last thing I want to mention is that um, there is a clear link between violence on the ground and internet shutdowns. And so when governments resort to this measure, especially in, in um, cases of context of conflict or political unrest. This leads to chaos on the ground. It leads to spread of disinformation where people don't know what's happening or can't even access uh, their networks or news sources to be able to inform themselves. Um, and so it really exacerbates uh, whatever is happening on the ground and makes it much more worse for people who are affected by those situations. Oh. And a slightly, uh, from a different perspective, although of course still part of the same a broad you know spectrum of issues, 
Um, last, earlier this year, um, uh, you did some work with us at POMAPS on content moderation of, in, in terms of uh, Palestinian voices during the war um, and, and the like. And, and you've written and tweeted quite a lot about the problems facing Palestinian activists in terms of social media for quite some time. And so just, you know, there's this news of Elon Musk possibly buying uh, Twitter and uh, possibly, you know, changing some of the key um, parts of Twitter in terms of, uh, for example, the ability to have anonymous um, accounts or in terms of um, relaxing some of the restrictions on hate speech or other kinds of disinformation content. So for, for you, what do you see as uh, kind of the possible implications of this for uh, social media in the MENA region? So at the, the background, the backdrop of this rising digital authoritarianism we discussed, we see, and the fact that platforms and, and the content moderation decisions and rules they apply have not necessarily been uh, friendly to users in the MENA region, have not necessarily provided the space for activists and dissidents uh, to express themselves, to document human rights abuses. So we come from an a disadvantaged place, so to speak. And then here we here comes the world's richest man to take the full ownership of an important platform. Now, Twitter might not be the biggest in terms of scale, uh, but in terms of importance, let's not forget that Twitter has been um, vital for the Arab revolutions in 2011. Of course, it evolved over the years, so it hasn't been necessarily the safe or healthy space that used to be for, especially for marginalized communities, for women, for gender minorities. Um, so some of the tweets and some of the kind of vision that uh, Musk shared in his sporadic tweets um, that has been tweeting uh, lately are extremely worrying. He said something basically by speech, by free speech. I mean, the, the speech that is uh, coded by law and that he's against censorship that goes beyond the law, which clearly shows that he is ignorant to the complex and challenging um, context in which Twitter operates. Of course, the first question that comes to one's mind is, which law are we discussing? Mm -hmm. Probably in his head, he's talking about the First Amendment in the US. But that ecosystem is completely different around the world, and especially in the MENA region, where more and more governments are extremely eager to control and censor online spaces through legislating repressive laws, whether it be cybercrime legislation or anti-fake news legislation um, that provides extremely elastic definitions of what crimes look like in the online world or the online sphere. And as a result of that, many people, many bloggers, activists, or even scholars uh, are prosecuted because they've expressed um, their opinions on all sorts of matters on, on those platforms. And so if Musk wants to abide by the law, um, this means he will be playing into dictators' hands. This means he has to comply with, for instance, Egypt's cybercrime law, where violating family values can get you or land you in jail for uh, 10 years. And that was the case of these TikTok young influencers who are sharing innocuous videos of dancing um, and lip syncing on, on TikTok. 
Um, another thing that um, is extremely worrying is his tweet about um, authenticating real humans uh, in a bid to fight or combat fake accounts and bots and spam on Twitter. Now, he didn't really elaborate what he means by that, uh, but from what we know, so like authentic if authenticating real humans mean forcing people to use their to use their real names um this means that um he is pretty much handing twitter users to authoritarian regimes on a silver plate they are eager to track and monitor what their citizens are saying and doing online. So that will make their job of tracking and harassing activists and others extremely easy. Now, if he, um, if he means that every Twitter user has to authenticate their identity by providing a legal ID, that's equally problematic and disturbing. Um, as I said, like governments are trying to hold tech companies hostage to their na national laws. Um, we see, for instance, in places like Iran or Turkey, there are advancements for laws um, that require some sort of data sovereignty where tech companies have to localize their users' data in the country. They have to open local offices and appoint local representatives that should comply with government requests for censorship or, or surveillance. And in, ca in case of non-compliance, those companies are facing either hefty fines or um, face the risk of being throttled or completely blocked in the country. So in situations like this, uh, asking users to provide a legal ID means that you're creating a sort of a honeypot that is attractive to governments. They can demand it by law. They can demand it through voluntary requests. Let's not forget that some certain governments ha do have informal collaborations with platforms. The first that comes to mind is the Israeli government through its so-called cyber unit. Um, or you can simply infiltrate into the system, like what Saudi Arabia did back in 2014 when it recruited two internal spies to unmask um, Saudi dissidents using the platform. And as a result of that, uh, tens of people were, were arrested in Saudi Arabia. Um, one of them has been uh, forcibly disappeared in 2018 for running a parody account that is critical of the government, Abdurrahman Sadhan. Then he uh, was sentenced to 20 years in prison with an additional of 20 uh, year of travel ban. So if probably Musk didn't really think about mm -hmm. what authenticating real humans mean on the platform and what uh, that means for people who live under digital authoritarianism and oppressive regimes. If he did get um, rid of the armies of bots, that wouldn't be a terrible thing. Right, yeah, but uh, that so that actually leads me to my last point, um, or another point I wanted to raise, and that is, you know, Mark, as a as a digital rights advocate and someone who works uh, on content moderation for years, I mean, civil society has been pointing to the fact that platforms have not been treating all their users around the the globe. Um, equally. And as a result of that, we see why Palestinian voices are being censored, why voices from Myanmar, from India, from Ethiopia have to deal with harassment, have to deal with calls uh, for genocide, for uh, hate speech, incitement to violence. 
uh, with real world impact. And yet platforms are or have been extremely luggish to move and respond to these real world events. And that is simply because it's not only about content moderations, it's also about how and when you prioritize your resources and attention as a platform. Um, and, and therefore, it's really scary to think about what would Musk do to address these dis discrepancies and this kind of inequitable investment, so to speak. Uh, from what has been reported in the press so far, um, he is thinking of cutting workers. So Twitter has around like 7,000 employees. Um, and so if he would want to cut, he'll probably cut from the margins where there is no economic interests or commercial interests for him. And that would mean most probably deprioritizing the already marginalized groups and communities that rely on these platforms and yet have received very little attention to the issues they face on such platforms. Well, thank you, Marwa, for joining us. And uh, we'll be definitely keeping an eye on these issues as they unfold over the coming years. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Thanasi Kambanis, an old friend of mine who has relaunched the Century Foundation's uh, uh, projects and programming on the Middle East and global issues. Uh, it's uh, somewhere at the intersection between academia, journalism, and analysis. Really interesting project. Thanasi, thanks for joining us. Tell us about your project. Well, Mark, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, the the rebranding of our international work at Century, we're calling Century International, and we uh, relaunched last fall. And what we've done is we've we've drawn on a long history of work that we've done on citizenship, rights, and governance, uh, and we've really resharpened our our focus on. So so we're a, an organization that's really rooted in granular, uh, slow research in the Middle East. Um, and one of our main advantages is that we're able to package this research in a way that's digestible, not just by academics and researchers, but by policymakers in the West and especially in the United States. So our sort of sweet spot is what's really happening in political, social uh, conflict uh, in the Middle East, and then talking about it in a way that we hope will change the terms of the debate, but also really be able to be heard by a, a type of policymaker who might normally be kind of uh, blind, deaf, and dumb to, uh, to, to, to nuance and to the sort of uh, tectonic changes that are underway in the region. It's always been a, a signature of the work that you guys have done is that it really does have that deeply researched, uh, as you said, granular level, which uh, is more, you know, kind of, you, you typically expect to see that from more of the academic side. Um, but tell us a little bit about the network that you have and how you've gone about conceptualizing, uh, you know, how you want to approach these issues. Sure. And, and that's also a good way to talk about this, this new project that we just launched uh, called Transnational Trends in Citizenship. So for about 10 years now, uh, we've been building iterations of research projects. And in each project, what we've done is we've, uh, we've recruited researchers from the region. Um, and usually we try and have a mix of like either junior researchers or, or relatively unknown researchers and then some you know, established well-known names. Uh, and in general, the unifying theme is all these people are folks who want to have an impact on on you know on power in the you know uh, uh, the tangible world. So whether they're academics or think tank people or activists, they're all like aiming at least part of their work at change. 
Um, so that's, that's the unifying theme. Now, 10 years into this work, we have a network of nearly 100 folks that we've worked with uh, on various projects. And almost all of them have, again, at least a core part of their work is trying to uh, either document or militate for, for political change, the expansion of rights, better governance uh, in the sort of core Arab world. And that, you know, we're not, we're not really like Morocco to, you know, we're not like the wider, you know, we really work in sort of the patch of the Arab world that goes from Egypt to the Gulf, to Iraq, to, to the Levant. Um, and now this new project uh, was actually born out of, uh, of work we had already done. So we had done a bunch of, of work on citizenship and rights. Um, and at some point there was a, you know, there was this running theme uh, among our researchers of, of uh, you know, a complaint that's going to be familiar to all your listeners, which is, you know, why is there such a, 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 an ingrained habit of exceptionalizing the Middle East and the Arab world, you know, as if protest in the Arab world is different than protest in general, or, you know, repression and autocracy in the Arab world. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the sort of joke beginning of this was Carl Sharo, who uh, started uh, fastening himself on Twitter as a WENA expert, Western Europe and North America. So anytime there'd be these sort of uh, uh, ridiculous, simplistic platitudes about MENA, he would pop on and say like, as a WENA scholar. Um, and, and we sort of took this and, and there was a serious element to this. Um, and we said, okay, what happens if we take a couple of core issues that, that we think are uh, sort of keystones of the crisis of our times and take people who work on those issues in MENA, people who work on those issues in WENA, and put them together and see what kinds of uh, what kinds of research agenda, what kind of policy recommendations, what kind of framing they come up with. Uh, and, and, and we really did this in a uh, uncharacteristically like unstructured way. So we, we picked four, four ideas, uh, militias, gender and sexuality, um, police accountability, and protests or protest movements. Uh, so, you know, these are like a, uh, various aspects of, of the general crisis in democracy and the resurgence of authoritarianism. And then we recruited interesting researchers who work on these issues in the Middle East, uh, interesting people who work on these issues in Europe and North America. And we stuck them together in year-long working groups where we had private, moderated uh, discussions about various elements of their work. Uh, and in the end, we generated a, a whole bunch of uh, kind of um, experimental free form content. So instead of doing like the traditional uh, work that we do where you come up with, you produce like a series of reports, we produced written roundtables, conversational podcasts, and then a whole bunch of uh, pieces that explored like one question or another. So we end up with like two dozen written pieces uh, and an eight uh, episode podcast season that really um, I think sets some really fascinating uh, new ground, both methodologically and also just in terms of the policy elements of, the, of these crises uh, that are relevant to both, both regions and really to these crises globally. And as you know, I'm really sympathetic to this idea of de-exceptionalizing the Middle East and trying to think trans-regionally, comparatively, and uh, kind of across, you know, applying these concepts, you know, globally. Um, and the, the, the new, uh, the roundtable that you just published uh, on armed groups and militias, I think it really nicely exemplifies this of, you know, trying to take these kinds of the concepts and apply them in a genuinely comparative way. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? So, you know, we, we asked the question around militia. Militia violence has become uh, an endemic 
threat to security, to state power in many different uh, countries and contexts. Uh, and so we brought you know, folks who work on Iraq, Syria, Yemen, and folks who work on Europe and, and the US. Uh, and you know, the first interesting thing was that there was a lot of resistance mainly on the part of the, uh, of the, like the, the Global North scholars to like almost in an, in an excess of, of, uh, of humility, they were like, oh, you know, these, these militias in Europe and in the US are such a, a smaller, more marginal threat. It, it seems somehow intellectually like, like inappropriate or maybe even offensive to compare that to, you know, what's happening in Yemen or Iraq where militias are, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, uh, and over time we overcame that because, because we're asking a question, right? We're not saying the, the Houthis and the neo-Nazis are the same thing. We're saying, what are, you know, let's look comparatively at recruitment, at challenges to state power, mobilization, um, the, the, the pathways from online, you know, online violence to offline real world violence. Um, and, and once sort of people got over this hang up, we found an enormous amount of commonalities um, and, and things that occur along the same spectrum. Some of them, I think, less surprising to, to folks who are attuned to, to militia violence in their context. So like, you know, the, the, the common tactics used by ISIS and American neo-Nazis, not so surprising, right? In fact, the only, the, the piece of that that was the newest to me was that there's actually have been some active collaborations online between neo-Nazis and ISIS members. That surprised me. I didn't realize that in some of these signal rooms, they were swapping ideas about messaging and propaganda and, and recruitment. Um, but uh, then there was a lot of other interesting parallels from, uh, you know, things I, I hadn't thought about, like the ways in which, uh, the ways in which gendered, uh, like basically gendered moral panics, like male anxiety about female empowerment uh, have been real common drivers of militia recruitment in wildly different contexts, you know, from, from Algeria and Morocco to Iraq to the U.S. You know, that's a, 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 a common thread I, I wasn't attuned to. Um, and, uh, and then a lot of the um, uh, sort of conceptual framing where uh, I've, I've often tried to understand the different nature of militia threats by looking at the sort of geography and, and hierarchy of the militias themselves. Uh, but a lot of the uh, discussions across contexts uh, led, uh, led to the idea that it's actually more, often more revealing to look from the other direction. So uh, the, the how is the state doing is often the biggest predictor of how important uh, or pivotal a a militia is going to be. And, you know, we already have a really good understanding that militias are not always opposed to the state, right? They're sometimes, they're, they're sometimes part of a, of a state orchestrated, uh, you know, uh, uh, repressive project or, or ethnic project or ethnic cleansing project. Uh, but if militias are going to play a pivotal role, it's, it's usually going to happen because states themselves are losing capacity. And that's something where, U.S. scholars who are really steeped in uh, in a sort of blinding exceptionalism miss like if you are able to step back and just think about these questions on a continuum and ask ah how capable is for example the U.S. state these days in enforcing or governing uh, uh, intentionally if you are able to look at that sort of clinically and not emotionally you 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 can quickly see common threads with. Uh, with states in the Middle East that were quite effective as centralized states just three or four decades ago, and today are, are 
quasi failed states uh, threatened by, by militias. And, and to me, that's one of the most important uh, insights gained by this project. Uh, you know, among other things, I think we're much farther along in our, in our state crisis in the US than, than I think a lot of US scholars realize uh, or US policymakers. Um, it's much more dangerous because you know what what the US experts would say is, oh, these neo-Nazis and these oath keepers and stuff, they're very marginal and small. They're not actually able to threaten the state directly. Um, and what the comparative or transnational exercise reveals is that's actually not such an important predictor of, of how dangerous things are. What's an important predictor is, is the state failing to be able to mm -hmm. uh, to enforce its its sort of barbarian uh, uh, mandate? And if it is, then uh, the risks, you know, the risks can come from multiple directions, and the pro the proliferation of militias is just one symptom of imminent state, you know, state mm -hmm. failures, collapse, or state incoherence. And one last question: Is the overarching a framing of the project is around the concept of citizenship, and why did you choose citizenship, and why do you, what what lens does that give us into kind of contemporary Arab politics and global politics? So, I mean that. I have to say that 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 that's a that's a a sort of answer in progress because our you know our initial framing around citizenship grew out of an earlier project and we had used citizenship as a way of making an inquiry about like the compact between states and those they govern uh, asking the question around citizenship especially when we were starting in the Middle East uh, really called into focus how many people are under the power of governments but don't have citizenship. I mean, the, you know, the huge mm -hmm. amount of people who live in the Middle East under control of whether it's, you know, the, the Israelis or, or, or Gulf monarchs or the Egyptian state or, or Iraq uh, or Lebanon are not citizens of the states that control their lives. Uh, so that really brings into relief the gap between, mm -hmm. you know, where your rights come from and, and, and where, uh, you know, whose power you're subject to. Uh, I'm not sure that it, it ends up being the best or, or only framing for when, when we made this, when we took the lens wider, because a lot of what we're, we end up talking about is uh, rights and governance as well. Um, and uh, I think, you know, the, 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 the citizenship question uh, for me, like, I, like I'm a proponent of universal rights. Um, I believe that the best way to sort of expand the zone of like better governance and better life is by giving uh, more people more rights under a universal umbrella rather than on the basis of their identity or even the basis of their citizenship, which is you know essentially a conditional. It's a conditional contract between a state and some people, and we've seen. I mean, Modi in India, uh, although he hasn't implemented this at a at a stroke of a legal brush, could subject tens of millions of Muslim Indians to having their their citizenship withdrawn. Uh, so, so we realize it's a very fragile uh, basis uh, for belonging and for rights. Uh, but I think the, the what, what that enables us to do is to acknowledge that, like, in our even in our democratic, supposedly liberal societies, uh, uh, rights and even the right to have rights as a citizen uh, are wholly conditional. The U.S. government has stripped a lot of people of citizenship for for engaging in terrorism or allegedly engaging in terrorism over the last decade. Uh, and so I, I like that as an organizing principle. Uh, I think fundamentally though, what we're talking about is rights. Um, and I mean, whether, whether the framework uses citizenship or rights 
for governance, I think you're getting at the same thing, which is this like really critical, but kind of hard to pin down and define like, like where is it that people get the right to demand that they're governed justly or accountably or with, with any care to their well-being and livelihoods? Um, and I think any way you get into it, uh, you end up at the same place, which is how weak and conditional that social contract and that governing contract is. Well, great. It's been uh, great talking to Athanasi Cabanas about this new Center International project. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And uh, hope your listeners, uh, if they're interested, go to the tcf.org website and you'll find the transnational trends and citizenship work uh, easy, easy to find at our, at our site. <laughs>